Hi, Tracy here, relaxing on vacation, but I just wanted to pop in and let you know that today's episode is actually part one of two parts because Kaylee and I got a little bit excited while talking about this topic. So you might hear a little bit of an abrupt ending to this episode, but know that there is a part two coming next week. So we'll see you then and enjoy the episode. favorite bits is when people I know who are in the computer science like industry will try to click on something or download something like oh what do you need a computer science degree to do this god and I think it's funny every time to me it is because I love those like very specialized skills of like I'm a fucking rocket science scientist like why can't I yeah can't reset my router (laughs) oh I think that all the time I have a computer science degree I work in IT and I'm the first person to get confused when my router goes out it's wild (laughs) sometimes when you catch up with a friend you talk about how people's lives are going and then other times you catch up with a friend like Kaylee and you immediately go into why capitalism is bad and that's why I love getting to connect with you Kaylee (laughs) burn it all down honestly yes we've just it's late stage capitalism who's it working for no one no one let's try it again start from zero yeah, the the French I just I want to do what the French do all the time at this point. And honestly, doing research for this podcast, I I feel that way more. And I didn't think Ooh. it was possible. Ooh, last time you were on the show, we talked about French and how a lot of people in your family speak it, but you don't. Yeah. Uh, swear words and commands. <laughs> <laughs> French scares me. Yeah, it's just because like six letters are actually just one sound usually, and then I Grew up around Quebecois French, which is very Ah. different French. Mm -hmm. So I also speak, if I like, am able to speak French a little bit, it's with an incomprehensible accent. (laughs) All right, what's one of your favorite commands? Um, Mom would get angry when we were growing up, or she'd get frustrated Uh and switch languages without noticing. So we had. That's why I I learned, but I learned like the things that you would tell a kid, like touche pas or arrête or de m'étouffer. Like, it's like, eat, don't touch that. Stop. Let's go. I watched you do that knowing no French, but with full on cartoon hard eyes of like, oh, it's so pretty as you're like saying, sit down, eat. I'm like, beautiful language. Such a good language. It's so good to be. And it's that moment of like, you know, you're like little and there's an angry lady yelling in a different language (laughs) at you. And you're like, is it? Get up, sit down, stop. Is it? Oh, shoes. Okay. <laughs> I get there eventually. And she would get like more frustrated and not still not realize that she had switched. So she'd be like, why aren't you listening to me? And I'm like, because you switched languages and I barely speak English. <laughs> I'm still learning to talk. God, I think sometimes that's how my dog must feel when I'm trying to train him. And he's like, I, I want to please you, but I truly don't understand what you're asking for. What? What is this? Please. Although the real joke is that my dog has any interest in pleasing me, that he is way too independent. My dog is like your cat, Kaylee. Because I was going to say, wait a minute, but Lola, 
But my cat has every interest in pleasing me. Yes, my cat is like a dog. And my dog is, he's like a cat in the sense he's the king of the castle. He's not interested in pleasing you. He just wants to do his own thing. But he's got a very sunny personality, which I would say Wednesday, I don't know that I'd describe as, as very sunny. No. I've, I just take, I've taken to calling her just like a little gargoyle because that's really all she, like what she does is she just goes to different places to perch and stare and glare. <laughs> With that wide look where they're just seeing into your soul, because Lola does that too. Oh, absolutely. But she'll she'll get little angry eyebrows almost where she'll just – it's a real like glare, glare. <laughs> like, what did I do? I didn't do anything. I just walked into the room. I stepped on the floor where you could see me. The mental image of you walking into a room, locking eyes with your cat and going, I didn't do anything is so funny, Kaylee. The amount of times I – that that just happens in a day. I do. I will straight up walk out and be like, "What? Well, I did what?" <laughs> and then she'll yell back. Yeah, because I do the same thing with Lola. Lola will. I walk in and she'll do a meow that sounds like hello, where it's like it is yeah. a meow oh, yeah. hello. And so then I'm like, "Well, how was your day?" And then we'll just have a back and forth. Yeah, I'll walk. I'll I'll walk out and she'll be like, "Like what?" And then she'll just go <laughs> and scream. <laughs> The two, the two Wednesday moods are, I didn't do it, and what? <laughs> yeah. Every so often I'll say, child, because she will have, she'll be trying to destroy something. Oh, yes. And then she'll turn all the way, she just recognizes the tone of voice now. She'll turn all the way around, like, fucking exorcist style, and give me that glare again. I'm like, you can't be upset with me that you are destroying something. <laughs> You're in the wrong. <laughs> All right, the one with the exorcist cat is none other than Kaylee Bray. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> and I am Tracy Harrison, and this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, consider following us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter, and we love getting to interact with everyone. Hey, you can also support Willing and Fable by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable, and I do hear that's where the cool kids are. Yeah, it's kind of where all the cool kids are. It's great. They're all in our Discord, and they share – the number of times people share bat stuff with me, Kaylee, is so much fun. I love going in the Willing and Fable Discord and looking at all the bat uh, – photos and all the little pet pictures everyone has the best pets it's so good everyone does have the best pets i mean we're talking everything from snakes to rabbits to dogs to cats to birds it fuels me it's a genuine delight i have to um put the picture that i took while i was writing and researching for the pod because i had all of these books like yes. spread out all over me and then the cat decided to grace me with her presence and just fall asleep uh just out of reach so no pets, but she would she was breathing the same air. I got such a good photo of like the cat by a stack of books. It was very aesthetic. It has very good Buffy energy. Like yeah. I, that's it's very Buffy the Vampire Slayer '90s. You had to go into the library and do your research energy. Yeah, which is my ideal circumstance almost always. Yes, yes. <laughs> or you can support our show by putting together the best charcuterie board of your entire life. And sitting down to enjoy it with friends. But no matter what, we're just happy to have you here. And that one may have been 
planted. Did you do a charcuterie board one for me? I did. I had to. You guys, she makes the best charcuterie boards and she'll text with her like homemade simple syrups. Okay, the best mocktail I have ever had in my entire life was made by Kaylee Bray. Hands down. Uh-oh. It was when I was when I was out there in April and it was oh yeah. Strawberry basil balsamic, I think. I still think about that charcuterie board. The drinks were really the big seller. I love farmer's market season because I get to just go and then decide what's going to be like the like syrup or infusion Uh of the week. I got fresh chamomile flowers. Ooh. And I infused honey. I'm going to lose my mind. And I put in lemonade. That was the, that was the drink that I, that was my, um, pod research fuel was like honey chamomile lemonade. And it was sensational. Highly recommend. This is so inspiring for me to want to go and make a lot of infusions and stuff. What I've been doing is taking fresh watermelon, lemonade, and ice and blending it together until it's like a slushy consistency. That sounds amazing. It's so good because then you can eat it, but then as it melts, you just start drinking it. Ugh, the dream. But that was going to be my – that should have been my something good. And instead, I keep getting distracted by drinks instead of talking about Beauty and the Beast. I'm sorry. I'm the worst. Help. I have ADHD. (laughs) I know. I'm no help too because I'm just like, this is great. I'm just chatting with a friend. I forget we're supposed to be talking about Beauty and the Beast. So, Kaylee, please take it away and share with us Beauty and the Beast, something you are rather known for. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about your connection with Beauty and the Beast? I love Beauty and the Beast. And it was – one of my favorite movies growing up, and she was always one of my favorite princesses because she's the book princess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I decided I wanted to do a Disney princess Dungeons and Dragons game and maybe like a web series, I was like, well, I no one else should – this was my dumb idea, so I should probably take <laughs> on most of the work and be the DM. So which Disney princess is the best DM? Like what fits best? It has to be Belle. It's just it's Belle. So it's like, Belle. Oh, I guess I'm Belle. And then Beauty and the Beast became my entire personality, <laughs> and every like social media profile photo for the rest of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can think about Belle all the time, and think about Beauty and the Beast, and how Chip exists as a child and a cup, and the, like the timeline of that uh-huh. like, once a week. It's so funny because I, before recording this, saw Rowan's mom, Carol. Hi, Carol, if you're listening. And we were chatting about Beauty and the Beast and we were talking about the timeline of the story, if you really break it down and think about it, becomes absolute insanity. Don't think about it. Uh, in the Like in the movie, don't think about it. I, I will say, uh, going back and doing research and reading the original tale, the timeline is really specific. Oh, really? Like they're like, you have three months for this, two months for this. It took 10 days here. And I was like... You can really tell these stories are written by women because <laughs> there's like the detail orientedness of all of it is so different than like the Disney movie that's like kids can't count. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> I just love executives being like kids can't count. They don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Uh, so they're like, wait, how old was the beast when he was uh, cursed? I think he has to have been a child, right? Yeah. I think maximum he was like 12 or 13. But then you also have the live action movie where they clearly show he is an adult man. Right. They did like the look, the live action changed a couple of things to be like, look, yeah, we ride Tumblr. Like, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> Here's some explanations for things that like shouldn't need explanations because like, hey, it's not real. It doesn't actually have to make that much sense. 
Did you, did you notice where uh, the, the talking teapot burst into song? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the live action. I think it's fine. There's some moments, some choices that aren't great. But Beast's song at the end slaps. So The music is good. I just I, – I genuinely wish that they had just let her use her natural voice and just sing. Yeah. Because the the process the reason I don't I think I I struggle with watching the movie more than once is the processing does something to my brain I can't get used to it mm-hmm. so every time she sings I'm just like nah the, the computer is breaking my whatever I can't I can't do anything but like hear the processed audio I'm just like mm. yeah that's fair it is there. Okay, one more distracting thing, and then I'll let you dive into your research. We're still talking about the, the <laughs> something topical. It's fine. I recently discovered this, and I only started it and haven't finished it. Have you seen the 2014 French live-action Beauty and the Beast? No. Kaylee, it is one of the most beautiful films I think has ever been created. Whoa. It's so beautiful and so stunning. My only problem, and the reason I haven't finished it, is because I can't find it anywhere in the original French. I just want to watch it in the original French with subtitles. And all you can find or buy or get online are English dubs, which is extremely distracting. Yeah. I had to look this up because I – and I, I didn't – like, I wasn't going to include it in, like, the research part of, like, the episode episode because I'm, I'm going to talk about, like, modern retellings of Beauty and the Beast. But this isn't one that, like, deserves scholarly attention, but yeah. you would like it. Um <laughs> There's a, I think it's a, it's a Russian film. I don't even know what streaming service it was on. I just like flipped over to it one day called like I Am Dragon. Oh, wait. Well, I'm already sold. Keep going. It's not a good movie. I'm still sold. Keep and going. And it is so much fun and you'll really like it. You'd have to watch it. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's a Beauty of the Beast retelling. It's like the landscape is stunning. Like they clearly are shooting it in like the cinematography and stuff is stunning. The plot is Beauty and the Beast, but probably a little worse. I don't remember. <laughs> But it's it's also so pretty, but in the like in the romance novel, like up my alley, like uh, that kind of pretty. Like there's yeah. a target audience, and I was it, and I enjoyed it immensely. I if you liked it, I'm gonna like it. Yeah. Oh my god, it's so much fun. Uh, you have to watch it. Uh, I am Dragon, a Russian Beauty and the Beast retelling where the Beast is a dragon. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The last thing I'll ask before. Do you talk about A Court of Thorns and Roses in this at yeah. all? Because that's the other oh, yeah. big modern retelling. Okay, so we'll get to that. All right, so Kaylee, oh, yeah. take me away. Take take me on a little journey. Yeah. So I think I've been talking to you guys about doing a Beauty and the Beast episode since the Bluebeard one because yeah. doing all that research on Bluebeard, you realize that Bluebeard and Beauty and the Beast are kind are so linked when mm-hmm. you think about uh, fairy tales as – Tools written by women for other women to, like, teach them something about or give advice about society. So, like, when it's you know, a, a woman telling, like, a maturing girl, especially someone uh, of marriageable age of a certain class, here are the things to look out for. Let me address the anxieties that you're having about the next, mm-hmm. like, steps of your life of marriage and sex and moving out of your parents' house and strange men and and children and and – I'm going to package it in a very specific way so that I can I can say it around men or mm-hmm. uh, in a, like a proprietary way, but still communicate like the things that need to be said. And so that like that system for navigating life in a, in a patriarchal society is something where you're very, very limited. And fairy tales as like a shared language 
is something that I have always been interested in, but the more and more I read about it, the more and more it, like, the more, like, interesting little tidbits I can tease out. And there's that uniquely subtle is a little bit the word I'm looking for, but a lot of the fairy tales, like, aren't subtle. Yeah. Right? Like, a lot of these fairy tales are like, this is a clear criticism of the society that has, like, like put me in this position. Mm-hmm. But also, it's it's written in that, like, multi-layered, quote-unquote, femme style of communication, where it's still not fully upfront. It's It feels obvious maybe to me because I was raised femme, and I speak that language. Yes. But a man reading it may be necessarily, like, you know, man TM, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't <laughs> – you don't – it's just socialized differently. Like, there's that traditionally, like, masculine form of communication that's, like, very upfront and brash and direct and aggressive and it's obvious. And the yes. whole, the the whole like, distinction between the two is, like, here's the very obvious, here's what's happening surface level. And then here's all of the ways we talk around the thing and we've been taught to talk around the thing. And some people are very good at picking that up very quickly and it's also – uh, at the time where fairy tales were like being born, mm-hmm. like the Court of the Sun King, these women had salons. You know, you go to the salon and you speak. So then you're training in the specific art of this kind of conversation where you're talking around and over and it's this multi-layered conversation where in telling fairy tales and stories to other women, you're practicing the art of that conversation and that kind of communication so that when you need to be able to speak that way, or just you want to be able to speak that way and show off, it becomes also not just something that you you have to do out of, like, safety, and it's about being dangerous, mm-hmm. about being oppressed, but it's also, no, it's like, this is, this is a skill that we have, this is something that I share with my community of women, where it's like, yeah, that moment of like, well, you just had to be there, right? Right. You know, like this is this is just something that's like for me. This is my experience. This is no like someone who has been born and socialized as a man can't relate to enjoying the art of conversation in that way in the same way. Yeah, it, and it, there is. I love the way you've described that, and, and also I think it's so fascinating the idea of the salons and that becoming a skill. But that's definitely something I see when I talk to people who are born femme, raised femme, socialized femme. It's so different. It is more subtle. And there's the like, and I'm sure this has happened to you then, especially with a group of sisters, because um, I was also raised um, around like a family, a big like family group that was mostly women, mm-hmm. is you're having a conversation in a group of femmes and you, and then someone joins the conversation, a cis man joins the conversation, and then everybody just shifts the way that they're talking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, seamlessly, sometimes unconsciously, it's just, like, an instinct. And it, like, it could be a friend. It could be a family member. It doesn't matter. Like, it's not like they're, like, an intruder, right? Mm -hmm. But there's this – when it's not about safety and it's a little bit, like, oh, I'm just assuming that this person is not going to be able to keep up with the way that I was just speaking. Like, they're not going to get it. I need to simplify everything, be a little bit more direct, you know? The, the, like – conversation style version of I'm going to use little words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if you found this. I I think definitely with with women more our age, I have actually noticed that I will lean on nonverbal communication with them in a way I don't with men in a way that I'll I'll just kind of look my female friends like straight in the eye with 
certain expressions like directly in front of a man and they knowing don't he's not notice. they never pick it up they never they never pick it up and it's really helpful because it's also helpful in a get me out of this situation way or uh, this is ridiculous or like it just little ways it yeah uh, a woman can look me in the eye and widen her eyes a fraction and it i will know exactly what it means and understand mm-hmm. the context of it and that's and it's something i feel like i don't know if i was taught that like explicitly. I know I wasn't taught that. Absolutely. It's just you you pick it up and that's that's something that I think people who are raised as women are taught to like pick things up in a different way. And I talk about this a little bit later about like mask communication versus femme communication and mask communication being centered around like the individual and the individual mm-hmm. goal and it, like that's where that kind of like communication style comes from. And then learning to communicate as a femme person and it being more environment-centered, everything has a context. So when you start to communicate, you know, where you are, you can reference – like, I find femme communication especially – especially now with, like, the influx of things like TikTok, really self-referential where, like, you are referencing – shared experiences and jokes and like memes mm-hmm. meme in the like traditional like societal for- form of it in addition to the like internet um definition of meme like there's so much symbolism in femme communication 100% there's layers tons of layers in any given conversation and i i love that and i think you know obviously there's a a lot of different you know, your mileage may vary, especially like neurotypical versus neurodivergent and all that other thing. Like mm-hmm. there are things that make things like simpler and more complex and easier to understand and harder to understand. And, you know, nobody's experience is exactly the same. And uh, the difference, too, between using that femme style of communicating, that subtlety, when like mm-hmm. you're invaded by a mansplainer at a bar oh and everyone God. is continuing their conversation around him. And above his, like literally above his head, mm-hmm. and he doesn't notice. Or like the stereotype of the high school mean girl, right? Where like men are aware that we do this, they just don't know really what mm-hmm. it is. So when you you see or read about a like a character of a high school mean girl written by a man, oh, it's so clear. I'm like oh no. Because it's too direct. It's too direct. It's too just like, wow, you look weird today. Like, no, that's, that's not what that's, say. that's not like middle school and high school girls can absolutely be monsters when those that that style of communication is like weaponized against each other. And the thing that I think is the main difference is that it's important to those bullies that the the girl that they are bullying knows that they are being excluded. So they're mm-hmm. aware that the that there is another layer to the conversation that they can't access, as opposed to when, you know, we're bullying a mansplainer, he doesn't know. He's not involved mm-hmm. in that conversation. Where like as a middle school girl, like the awareness of being excluded is like the worst violence that could happen <laughs> to me. Oh my god. As like an eighth grader, I'm like, Ugh. and that's the difference. That and 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 knowing, knowing that what was being said to you is mean, but 
saying out loud that it's mean makes you sound a little bit crazy where they're like, oh, they they said yeah. I made some interesting choices today. And you're like, no, like right. That that wasn't that wasn't just like a cute commentary. It, but but obviously like nothing's wrong. They just said you made some interesting choices today. And yet it guts you yeah. to the core. And it's I find it so wild. And that's uh that style of communicating with other women was also included in the like the salon and the the fairy tales mm-hmm. written by women. There was so much in the stories created by women for other women that included that like femme on femme violence in that way. Oh yeah, that yeah. Men cut out. They're like, this isn't relevant when they like adapted them uh- into other stories. And, like, that was always the big thing for me, and I'll address this later, like, uh, with some specific examples, because I was like, that's yeah. how you know that the story written by a woman was edited and adapted by a man, because he cut out one of the most important things that women were teaching each other, which was there are a lot of different kinds of enemies that you are going to face and difficulties and challenges that you're going to face as a woman, and you have to also be aware that other women can be will be weaponized against you. Because the patriarchy is bad. Yes. Yes. Oh, man. Okay, this just got me so excited to hear more because it never occurred to me to dig into the the way that the men who've made famous all of these fairy tales may have changed or left out stories. And I'm not going to pretend that the main heads of you know people who wrote fairy tales came up with them all on their own necessarily. We've talked about it before. Those were likely oral stories from many different cultures all over the world that they're pulling from and what would those women have said to help guide and raise the younger generations is so interesting because we talk about uh, fairy tales as cautionary tales a lot and as ways to teach children but that's not the only thing they're doing it isn't the only thing that they're doing but uh i'm glad you guys talk about that so often because beauty and the beast is one of the ones that you actually can track the evolution of how fairy tales became more didactic cautionary tales through Beauty and the Beast. Ooh, oh, interesting. Technically, Beauty and the Beast was written by uh, a woman who was in the second wave of uh, feminist fairy tale authors um, in France. Mm-hmm. So she was writing stuff down from the oral storytelling that was achieved in the salon and then but but beauty and the beast specifically transformed that into a different thing and then it was readapted and simplified by another woman Mm. to become more didactic okay and then that changed everything and is the the second version the one that we now know the more simplified the second version is the most commonly told one um Ooh. across the board okay which actually i uh, i had to even simplify it a little bit more because it is a lethal long but this is the version the like simplified version that was written down by uh, a french novelist and a governess uh, her name is jean-marie la prince beaumont because everybody at this time had 11 names at least add another one on just for safety right and so this is the most commonly told told version, the fairy tale version, which will still feel different than like the Disney version. Goes a little something like this. 
Once there was a wealthy merchant with six children, three sons, three daughters. All his daughters are beautiful, but the youngest is so fair that she earns the nickname Little Beauty. Beauty grows to be a humble, kind, generous young woman who loves to read and is devoted to her family. Her sisters, on the other hand, while beautiful, are haughty and greedy, put on airs, and are always jealous of Beauty. When the merchant loses his wealth and moves the family to the country, Beauty and her brothers do what they can to make the best of it, and the two eldest daughters laze and lament their loss. The merchant gets word that one of his ships has returned to port and journeys to meet it. Thinking their wealth is returning, the two eldest daughters demand he bring back fine clothes and jewels as gifts. When prompted to ask for a gift of her own, Beauty simply asks for a rose if he finds one on his way, as they are rare in these parts in the country. The journey, unfortunately, proves itself to be fruitless, and the merchant heads home as poor as ever and gets hopelessly lost. He stumbles upon a palace in the wood, deserted but with a roaring fire, hay for his horse, and a fine supper on the table. He waits for someone to appear, and when no one does, he eats his fill and falls asleep. The next morning, he finds a breakfast waiting for him, and heartened, goes to saddle his horse. Passing through the garden, he remembers Beauty's request and cuts a rose to bring back for her. He's immediately confronted by the master of the castle, a hideous beast who demands the merchant's life for the stolen rose. The merchant begs for mercy, saying he was simply bringing it back for his daughter. The beast offers mercy if one of his daughters will offer herself in exchange. He gives him three weeks to return, either with his daughter or alone to repay his debt, and sends him off with a chest of gold so that he not return empty-handed. Upon his return, Beauty immediately volunteers to go, despite her father and brother's protests. Her sisters are pleased, as their jealousy has not abated in the country. She also asks that he take the gold from the beast and give it to her sisters so that they can marry well. When the two return to the palace, the beast asks if she has come willingly, and Beauty says that she has. The beast is satisfied and sends her father away. That night, Beauty dreams of a lovely woman who tells her that her good deed will not go unrewarded. In the morning, Beauty is frightened, sure that the beast is going to kill her. But instead, he shows her great hospitality, gifting her a library of books, musical instruments, and anything else she desires. Every evening he visits and talks with her, and she begins to see beyond his ugliness and lack of wit, thinking of him with esteem. There was only one thing that gave Beauty any concern, which was that every night, before she went to bed, the monster always asked her if she would be his wife. One day she said to him, Beast, you make me very uneasy. I wish I could consent to marry you, but I am too sincere to make you believe that will ever happen. I shall always esteem you as a friend. Endeavor to be satisfied with this. I must, said the beast, for alas, I know too well my own misfortune. But then I love you with the tenderest affection. However, I ought to think myself happy that you will stay here. Promise me never to leave me. Beauty blushed at these words. I could, answered she. Indeed, promise never to leave you entirely. But I have so great a desire to see my father that I shall fret to death if you refuse me that satisfaction. I had rather die myself, said the monster, than give you the least uneasiness. I will send you to your father, you shall remain with him, and poor beast will die with grief. No, said Beauty, weeping, I love you too well to be the cause of your death. I give you my promise to return in a week. You shall be there tomorrow morning, said the beast, but remember your promise. He gives her a special ring that she can use to return to him, and he sends her on her way. Her father is overjoyed to see her again, but her sisters, having made unhappy marriages, are jealous beyond belief to see her dressed richly and so content. They plot to convince her to stay beyond the week, hoping that will enrage the beast and he will devour her. So they play at great kindness and convince her to stay longer. On the tenth night, she dreams that she saw a beast who, in a dying voice, reproached her with her ingratitude. 
Beauty started out of her sleep and bursting into tears. Am I not very wicked, said she, to act so unkindly to Beast? I will not make him miserable were I to be so ungrateful I should never forgive myself. Beauty, having said this, uses the ring to return and finds the Beast stretched out quite senseless and, as she imagined, dead. No, dear Beast, said Beauty, you must not die. Live to be my husband. From this moment I give you my hand and swear to be none but yours. Alas, I thought I had only a friendship for you, but the grief I now feel convinces me that I cannot live without you. Beauty scarce had pronounced these words when she saw the palace sparkle with light, but nothing could fix her attention. She turned to her dear Beast, for whom she trembled with fear, but how great was her surprise! Beast was disappeared, and she saw at her feet one of the loveliest princes that I ever beheld. Though this prince was worthy of all her attention, she could not forbear asking where Beast was. The prince tells her that he was cursed by a wicked fairy to remain a beast until a beautiful virgin agrees to marry him, won by the goodness of his temper. He offers her his crown, and they go into the castle to see her whole family, and the beautiful lady she dreamed about the first night at the palace. "'Beauty,' said this lady, "'come and receive the reward of your judicious choice. You have preferred virtue before either wit or beauty, and deserve to find a person in whom all these qualifications are united. You are going to be a great queen.' "'As to you, ladies,' said the fairy to Beauty's two sisters, I know your hearts and all the malice they contain. Become two statues, but under this transformation, still retain your reason. You shall stand before your sister's palace gate and be at your punishment to behold her happiness, and it will not be in your power to return to your former state until you own your faults. Immediately, the fairy gave a stroke with her wand, and in a moment, all that were in the hall were transported into the prince's dominions. His subjects received him with joy. He married beauty and lived with her many years, and their happiness, as it was founded on virtue, was complete. So this is definitely the version that the 2014 French film uh, bases their story off of. Because I remember being very confused. It starts out and I was like, is Belle the youngest of six kids? Yes. Yeah. Yes, she is. Well, in the original version, she's the youngest of 12. Ooh. That is so many children. Uh, De Beaumont adapted and simplified uh, and abridged a novella, like a full like novel, mm. basically, that was written by... Gabriel-Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve, I think, ish. Sorry, France, I'm Québécois. Uh, called La Belle et la Bête, right? So, right, right. This one, was it was for adults. Like, this is a, I am writing to address the anxiety of adult women. And also, it was very, very pointed, right? It's a, it's a critique of forced marriage and um, all of, all of the circumstances surrounding a lot of what happens to very young women who are mu- who are mm-hmm. married to much older men and just shipped off, uh, the, similar to Bluebeard, right? That's like, they're not taught what to do. They're not taught what to expect. Mm-hmm. And the, the virtue of the marriage, which I'll talk about later too, going more about the like archetype of Beauty and the Beast and where that's coming from and like animal as bridegroom as like a folkloric like mm-hmm. uh, category. Of that, like, domesticating, civilizing effect that women are supposed to have on men when they're married. So, like, I can the women fix him. Like, I can fix him because I'm a virgin. And so. He just hasn't known the love of, of a quote unquote decent woman. Yeah. My purity and my chastity will mean that he won't want to be sinful anymore. And by sinful, maybe I mean enjoy sex, but we don't know. It's always very unclear of, like, what do you, what do you, what do you really mean? Yeah. Because the expectation in practice was also never, oh, I expect men to remain faithful and kind to their wives, right? It's you procreate. Mm-hmm. And then the wife has to maintain the perfect reputation, flawless. 
this Absolutely. 13, 14 year old, you know, the man is, you know, potentially 30, 40, 50 years her senior. Mm. So these women told these stories. Uh, and the original novella was really complicated and there's a lot of social commentary. Uh, and she wrote it a little bit after the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. So, like, the Sun King had passed, but mm-hmm. it was after the, like, style of the that first wave of, okay. of women who ran the salon, like, were, like, um, Charles Perrault, like, really embedded in the Sun King's court. But because it was a little bit later, there was a whole extra backstory for the prince and his curse. Oh, in the original story. In the original story. Like, he, uh, his dad died and his mother, the queen, who I think they, like, coded kind of, like, Amazonian, um, oh. had to go fight wars. So she left him in oh. the care of this old evil, f- or e- this old fairy who ended up being evil. And so she raised <laughs> him and then tried to seduce him. And he like, refused to marry her. And I feel like Mary is probably a censored version of what Villeneuve actually wrote. So she turned him into a beast. Oh my god. So potentially in the original version, the beast is a victim of sexual assault. That's that is supposed to be that's like the first the very first like iteration of this one specifically. So he could only be rescued by someone who had completely pure intentions. Wow. But also because it was this period of time in France when the when the lovely woman who was the queen arrived, who was a different lovely woman than the one she was dreaming about, because there always has to be a good fairy and a bad fairy, so she was dreaming about right, a good fairy probably. Yeah. Yeah, this was like a long story, it was really convoluted, and she would like go off on all these crazy tangents, all these like wild tangents about other things like mm-hmm. The, like, you know, they would play croquet and she would, like, go through the actual, like, you know, she would, she was just doing just what she too wanted. much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was probably paid by the word. Who knows? Um, probably. A lot of them were at this point. Right? Uh, but uh, Beauty also had to ha- have, like, a secret noble birth thing. So she was the daughter of the fairies sister okay or it was someone who's like the fairy sister and the queen's brother because incest is fine as long as they have noble blood i couldn't that part is hard to kind of parse but they had for whatever reason she has some kind of secret noble background and then was like changelinged into like to replace the one of the merchant's dead daughters oh oh okay so then she's allowed to marry, and so, like, the queen was like, you, you're a merchant's daughter, you can't marry the prince, and the fairy's like, don't worry. Just kidding, she's actually a princess. She's actually, a pr- like, don't worry about it, she's a princess, they can get married. That was the only thing that was keeping them from being married, was her being a yeah. princess. <laughs> My god. So that's the original, original. Um, the, the first one that was written down. Mm-hmm. So it originated as a novella. It originated as a novella, uh, inspired by the, like, oral tales of the first wave of French fairy tale create like writers, including um, and I'll talk about her later because I'm obsessed with her, um, Madame uh, Dolnoy. 
Okay. Who's the first person to, like, she coined the term fairy tale. Oh, I think Rowan said that fact in the Sleeping Beauty episode, but I don't think we dove too much into Madame Delnoy. And if it was, Sleeping Beauty was like episode four, so I'm excited. I don't for this. think I don't think you talked about her, uh, so I'm so excited to talk to you about her because you would remember if you had talked about her. Okay, because huh, <laughs> she, she's so interesting. Um, mostly okay, because really no one knows how much of her life is actually made up. Oh, that's fun because she was so good at writing fairy tales that. When she needed money, she wrote memoirs, like, quote-unquote memoirs that, like, turned out to all be made up. That is so fun. So she's got this, like, they're like, who is she? Yeah, who knows? Like, and the stuff that's provable is so wild that they're like, eh. So there's provable stuff in there that's like, yeah, we do know this happened, and it is it is a wild story. Okay, hold on. I'm going to stop interrupting it. Sit back and i'm very excited to learn about this woman it's it's great so like that was drawn from her stories which she wrote a ton of animal as bridegroom stories because uh she was forced into a marriage young and it was awful um so she was obsessed with the genre it was kind of an escape for hey in this version of the story when she has to marry a monster he's actually a wonderful person and a prince and yeah in my life i married a monster and he was just a monster this uh, and I'm gonna. I'm so glad you said that because I'm gonna kind of go into it a little bit more and all the different ways uh, and how um, the genre has evolved and changed and what it means to us now. But like, this was one of the original like feminist escapist fantasies. Yeah, that makes sense. In a way that it wasn't sanitized, it was incredibly topical, and it was a woman screaming into the void yeah next to other women also screaming into the void and uh like some of it is instructional but like this one specifically and a lot of the uh stories from her predecessors they were more addressing the issues of society like and commiserating as opposed to being like this is how you deal with it Mm. but when de beaumont got her hands on beauty and the beast she wasn't a noble woman she was a governess so she Cut out the secret nobility. It didn't matter to her. Yeah. She was, so Bella's just a merchant's daughter. Yeah. And she simplified a ton of stuff. She's like, you don't need 11 other siblings. Like, calm down. Like, cut all the complicated backstory out. Like, really simplified and made things very archetypical mm-hmm. so that it could be a morality tale that she could share with her bright young ladies. Yeah. And address the anxieties that they had at the time. So you can like watch just in the trans, just the abridgment from the original La Belle La Bette to De Beaumont's La Belle La Bette, much shorter, much clearer, much simpler, mm-hmm. and really intentional. Like, and she cut off a lot, like cut out a lot of like extra sex and violence that was part of the like novella because mm-hmm. that was what you know. It's just a different audience for that book. Yeah, but that was one of the first instances of that we can like see of Mm -hmm. a complicated tale being reformed to start really leaning into what the fairy tales became which is that like didactic cautionary educational morality tale Mm -hmm. that a lot of other women picked up because in these you know in these salons and and writing letters and and uh, 
socializing together in these communities, they learn that that's how you can practice that art of conversation and communicate with each other. Even if you're not in the same room, you can send each other stories or write stories for each other. Yeah. To keep you safe, teach you about the world, protect your daughters, educate your daughters, that men just won't. Yeah, they won't clock it. It's just a story. They won't clock it. And a lot of men also considered fairy tales who didn't have a lot of women in their life or respect women, which was a lot of them at the time, because you didn't need to in the same way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They thought fairy tales were for children or for poor people, Mm. like the uneducated, people who couldn't read so they needed to have oral traditions. Oh, well, that sounds like something they would say about oral traditions. So women were like, great, yeah. These fairy tales, so so silly and 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 for not for smart, not for big not strong for big smart strong man, smart man like you. <laughs> and then I'm gonna write a whole book of fairy tales about how men are trash. <laughs> like, I mean, just take a look at the modern romance genre and how women created an entire genre. Uh, we're gonna take it stereotypically. Women created an entire genre about how they want men to treat them, and men laugh at it. Yeah. It's it and it started with these women in the court of the Sun King. Yeah, it started with fairy tales, and that was their escapist fantasy. And then that tradition has been passed down, and it absolutely became the Harlequin romance. Yeah, I, I, I you can see a clear line, which is I just think very cool because it's fun to watch uh, the evolution of what what escapism really means. Mm-hmm. Because the the first wave were not very concerned with happy endings. They would like dabble in a happy ending once or twice. Yeah. But that wasn't their priority. They didn't need to act out or pretend like things were going to get better or like there's this like dream of everything being perfect. Even with something like Villeneuve where she did decide to do something that was more happy ending based like you can track every little bit of like oh the man still changes mm-hmm. and that's yeah that's something that a lot of people talk about and address and there's like jokes made too about like oh beauty and the beast like how many people were disappointed when the beast transforms mm-hmm. and he's a different person and he's not the person that all of us have been like falling in love with throughout the story right and there's you know there's jokes to be made about that too, but there is a there's an element of you st- even in my even in my I get to decide and day maladaptive daydream my whole fantasy about this like it's not it still can't be perfect because that's not actually what I want right both De Beaumont and Villeneuve have this fantasy of this man's incredibly wealthy and he just like. After sentencing the merchant to death, he's still like, okay, but, like, also fill up this chest with some gold and take it to your family. Yeah. Like, oh, you're going to go visit your father? Here's a chest of, like, fancy dresses and stuff. And there's a um, – I cut it out of the story because the story is getting very long. Um, <laughs> but there's a moment where, like, she, like, gets kind of, like, teleported to her father's house. And then the Beast will teleports her over, like, a chest full of, like, fine dresses and stuff. So she picks the plainest one and – is going to make a gift of the nice dresses to her sisters. And then the chest disappears and the beast takes <gasps> it back and he won't give it back until she promises to keep them for herself. <laughs> like, a man is not going to write that. A man's not going to write that. Th- Listen, how much time do we have to talk about <laughs> romance novels and tropes and all that? Because, no, a, a man would never write that. A The idea of Beauty and the Beast is such a 
quote unquote, like, this is the female gaze story because the thing that you fall in love with isn't a big, strong man in his, I don't know, skimpy clothes with his big muscle. Like, it has nothing to do, it has nothing even to do with, like, he's the big, strong protector. He's this, it's, he's a good person and a kind person and he treats you well and you find things about him to love that make you fall in love with the whole character, not just a physicality. And like, that's not a story that I see men writing. And there's jokes and even now on TikTok and online of like, reading a romance novel, be like, oh, crap, is this written by a woman? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Like, we love, look, <laughs> we love a man written by a woman. Uh, it's, everybody knows that, especially now. And TikTok has made that just extra fun to like, play around in that genre. And like, I got to play around in that genre a little bit doing Salt and Serpent. And getting to, like, embody a male character, uh, the kind of male character that I'd never have played before. And it was so much fun. You broke the internet a little bit. There was <laughs> – there were GIFs. There were videos. I, there was a fan fiction, I believe. There's a lot I of mean, fan fiction. But, like, <laughs> also, let's be a little bit fair here. Rowan made a – it was a little bit Hades Persephone. But what is Hades Persephone but a Beauty and the Beast – I agree. Uh, the the big like accepted like first animal is bridegroom Greek mm-hmm. myth that everything kind of trickled down from is the uh, Cupid psyche yeah story. But come on, I mean, but also just to talk about how amazing story is for a second, the Cupid psyche story. You know, oldest you just mentioned. Fast forward thousands of years, and Katie Roberts has a Cupid psyche romance novel in her neon gods series yeah and it's just like that there's a through line there of thousands of years that we're still touching on these stories but turning them into something different and from this female perspective so it just makes me so excited and there is something so delicious about the the way we've taken the you know animals a husband or bride and turned it into the i can fix this monster quote unquote trope in romance novels it's yeah and then there's also the like other element to that which is i imagine this person this unknown this other which was one of the original intentions of those fairy tales Mm -hmm. this this is a monster right in my imagination this is someone i've never met and i now have to like so there i can only imagine the need the reassurance I would need that I would find in a story like this that's like, look, this is obviously a fairy tale. I can't promise that Mm -hmm. he will have known immediately that you like books and the harpsichord and will have a little room set aside (laughs) already for you. The fact that that's in the original tale, Tracy. (laughs) Bell's library (laughs) is in the OG. I mean, I, I love it. I love that. She's been this character the whole time. The whole time. She was well-read and kind and ridiculed by uh, – in the in the Disney movie, it's not her sisters, but they, her sisters still exist in the, like, version of the three ta- – of the, the – what um, they call, like, the silly girls. Yeah. And it's wild that that's the last remaining piece of those characters in the Disney film – because so much of it also, because I like I was taking a lot from the like word for word, the English translation, obviously, mm-hmm. like the transformation with like there's like lights and fireworks and and like a swell of music. I'm like, <laughs> yes, 
and the library and and uh, things like that. It's like, oh, yeah. What and in like the choices that were made, like of what to keep and what to take, like what to leave, uh, in the Disney movie specifically, I find fascinating. I still don't fully understand where those choices came from. I agree with that completely. But like, because yeah, like this story is so different, and then, but then parts of it are a carbon copy. So I don't know. I will say the addition of Gaston. I actually enjoy. He's one of the first. He was one of the first Disney villains to be a man. And yeah. not a not stereotypically beautiful woman. Right. And it was just an interesting commentary on misogyny that was unexpected from Disney at the time. Which I – yeah, and I really liked. And there's a there's a folklorist who has a little bit of a problem with Gaston. Um, her name's Terry Wing- Windling and I uh, read a lot of her stuff. The issue that she has with the Beauty and the Beast film is that it oversimplifies the fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's like, fairy tales are already, like, geared towards children, like, and it's not kind to lie to children. It's not kind to talk down to children. And so when you simplify something that's already supposed to be simple, like, in the original story, Beauty makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. She makes choices that hurt the beast. Her father makes a decision that leads to her having to sacrifice herself for him. The good characters are ambiguous and the evil characters are ambiguous. And so then when Disney comes in, it's like, this is really simple. These characters are always good. This character is always bad. Look, he's wearing a black hat. Mm-hmm. And Disney movies get a lot of criticism from folklorists for that of like, it's not fair to children to teach them. It's like the, the Stranger Danger campaigns. Yes. It's not fair for, to, to teach children that, that the wolf at the door looks like a wolf. And I think that's a really interesting perspective to have because like, you know, yeah. That's true. There's a lot of, I mean, different cultures have really strong opinions on how much you should or shouldn't hide from children. And I uh, completely understand that criticism from the Disney movies compared to the original myths, for sure. And, like, look, a 90s girl child has different anxieties and concerns than the original audience for the story, right? Like, Eight-year-old Kaylee was not thinking about being married off to a 50-year-old man. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, like, right. Uh, you, it's nice to have that uh, privilege as a human being. So good. Mm-hmm. But then there are other tropes that are really helpful. So, like, bringing in that, like, oh, it's a girl who reads. She's allowed to, you know, or this is – but she's, like, a little bit weird and experiences kind of like a social isolation. And yeah. being different and being quirky and, and what that's like. I mean, and think about how that was the thing you and I pointed to when we said – you even said I was – she was the book princess, so I yeah. liked her. I felt the same way. I grew up with the mom who's always like, you should want to be like Belle, not like Ariel. Ariel betrays – or lies to her dad and then gets a prince out of it. And Belle is a good person who sees the good in people. And, you know, that was what I was raised with. But And that's still fairy tales as, like, morality tales. Like, we still do that as a culture. How cool is that? (laughs) It's it's so cool. And I just think it's also really interesting that she's a character since her inception that people have connected to because she was always a little bit different. And yes, of course, she was beautiful, which makes things much easier and different. But her thing was she was the book princess. There's me and so many of my friends have always liked Belle because of that, because she had that really specific defining quality. She was also the first princess I think that I got to experience, and I am not fully 
familiar with my Disney Renaissance timeline, and I honestly should be, uh, about whether she was the first princess in the Disney Renaissance to do this. She was the first one that I remember getting to watch not fall in love at first sight. And as a baby asexual, yeah. getting to identify with a princess who developed a relationship by long, like time and connection and shared interest, I was like, oh. Oh, that's an option? <laughs> that – I relate to that more. Yeah. I mean, and then not to, to take us out of the Disney canon and into a different canon, but Anastasia with – uh, Anastasia and Dimitri yeah. and the enemies to lovers slow burn and you can get to know someone and really care about them as a person. Uh, yeah, it's just a different type of story that's being told compared to, you know, Little Mermaid's love at first sight, Cinderella's love at first sight, Sleeping Beauty's love at first sight. Right. The, the, other, the other one would be like Mulan isn't. Mulan is another Mulan was the other is, a, is like the other one I always think of is like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. You like went to war with someone and bonded. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What do the other princesses have as their thing? Aside from Merida has archery and being independent. Rapunzel uh, is okay. an artist. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Rapunzel does a little bit of everything. Uh, yeah. Kid. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just don't give them a lot of character to be like, I connect with this one other than like she wears the blue dress and she wears Yeah, the pre-Disney Renaissance – because there were a lot also less, like, women involved in the character design oh, and yeah. marginalized people in the character design, you see the, like, sanitized, teeth taken out, oversimplified, like, through the 90s even, like, including that um, – including the, the Disney film of these kinds of fairy tales. And it started, in my opinion, because even with De Beaumont, like, that – that tale still had something to it. There were mm -hmm. the pointed uh, emission of the noble heritage was really important at that time. Yes. Like, and that's only a 15-year gap. That just – that's 17th century France, baby. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> of the, like, noble heritage, very important. 15 years later, she's a merchant. She is specifically a merchant's daughter. <laughs> I also uh, – I included uh, two portraits in our little write-up of the two women. I'm like, hey, guess which one's which? <laughs> I just need to talk about the fact that the portrait on the left has a little monkey Why does she have it. a monkey? Why right. does she have a monkey? They were Crazy. really popular in France in the – as pets in the um, 16th and 17th century, I think it was. Yeah. Even and, through the 18th. Right. She's And she's a noblewoman, so she gets this kind of portrait, right? Oh, oh yeah. This, she, like, this is very – this is so specifically France in the – it has that Marie Antoinette vibe. Yeah. The powdered hair, the florals. It's a soft oil painting. They've got the rosy cheeks and the pink lips. And then there's just this little monkey holding her hand. And then right next to her – uh, this looks like a governess. It's a governess. And it also looks – she's, like, it all in black. She's all really very modestly dressed. Um, there's no softness to this person at all. It's, like – it looks like our version of, like, a staff ID photo. Oh, my God, it does. Or like, a driver's license photo. Yes. Yeah. I mean, she's she's got a cute little frilly cap. Uh, there, there's a kindness in her eyes, but it, as soon as you said it looks like a – yeah, yeah, this is her 
This is her work ID. She didn't commission this portrait. Someone is like, this is our, like, this is our governess. Like, you know, this is our governess. Yes, please have her take her portrait as well. And she's like, oh, I'm uncomfortable here. Yeah, it has that energy. (laughs) Okay. Uh, But imagine that woman telling you a story. Oh, I bet it would be amazing. You know she'd do the voices. Oh, absolutely. She also, uh, de Beaumont would collaborate with some of her older students on storytelling. So she would, she passed down the aversion of that like salon culture mm-hmm. and that art of conversation and storytelling to survive to her students from when she moved from France to London to oh. be a governess. Oh, that's cool. So she was translating these stories too, which is so cool. I love her. I love her. She knew what she wanted to do and she took a story and she just did it. And she's like, this is a tool I need. And then everybody else copied off of her homework for the rest of time. Until today, still. Yeah. Yeah. It's still happening. Uh, And literally hers was one of the first fairy tales that didn't either chronicle the life of of like royalty or nobility or the life of a peasant. She was one of the first people ever to write down a fairy tale about a merchant class. It's yeah. She changes that that lady in her nice little cap changed history, Mm -hmm. changed the way that we tell stories. She really did because this is such a. I mean, I would say this and Cinderella are two so easily understandable foundational fairy tales that impact so many stories. It is such a shorthand to say it's this thing is. It's kind of like a Beauty and the Beast retelling. You know immediately what you're getting into. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about the original like accepted and like the common told versions of cinderella versus the commonly told versions of Beauty and the beast because cinderella is attributed to a man mm-hmm. and Beauty and the beast like emphatically isn't and you can tell the difference yes it's so different and you can you know you can see in the disney movies even but like those shorthands also of like this is the kind of lesson that men think the women need to address their anxieties about it right mm-hmm and this is the kind of lesson, the morality tale, that women know that they need. The difference comes down to, even when you simplify them, the story is Cinderella, be kind, be caring, be you know gentle and loving and good things will come to you. Even in the most simplified version of Beauty and the Beast is be kind and brave and caring and loving and see past people into who they really are and you know it had that element of be curious and knowledgeable as well like even in its most distilled still has more than its most distilled version of cinderella and i think that's where it ties into you can see the beauty and the beast was born out of this need to explain in the most simplified way how to deal with a terrible husband or or even just your fears about a terrible husband exactly and there's a there's a like an element also of because Perot did this too, where like men telling fairy tales, you know, a lot of them also had good intentions. There wasn't it wasn't all about like oh like this is about control and propriety and and whatever. Like Perot also like he wrote Little Red Riding Hood. Right. He was like, I've been in rooms with men. I've heard what they say about women. I've heard how they talk about women. I I have young women that I am concerned for and feel close to. So let me write a story about. The dangers of men who might appear charming and smile and are very dangerous because I have this experience and let me help. Mm-hmm. 
which is noble and lovely. Yeah, that's something that people, like, the men should want to do. But having that extra, like, distance removed, that step distance removed, changes the style of the story so much where, like, if you look at what his actual contemporary, like, Dolnoy, Mm -hmm. who wrote very few happy endings, her stories were, like, a lot messier and a lot sharper and more pointed because she didn't have the privilege of perspective in that way. Like, she couldn't remove herself to give, like, a nice, clean, overarching uh like lesson she's like no i'm in this i'm in this and i can't get out so this is where like it's coming from the middle of it it doesn't get to be right and yeah it it, i think that's a great way to frame it of either it didn't get to be clean or she had let's say the privilege of knowledge but in a lot of cases it's not the privilege of knowledge but she had knowledge that she could share that just was inherent to her lived experience as opposed to perot who had you know had lived experience of overhearing things or wanting to share and protect people, but even we say it today, it's one thing for men to know that women are scared to walk alone at night. It's another thing to be scared alone at night and have to live it. Right, and like you know, it takes all kinds to change society and protect people, but see, like seeing those differences just come to life in their work is so interesting in the way that mm-hmm. these artists were attempting to challenge and manage society and help it evolve and they all just like made different decisions about what was best yeah for the next generation i find like it's it's interesting to track so like when you take beauty and the beast and then it, you get to move it. You, you get to watch the journey from de Beaumont's version to 100 years later. It gets published in uh, Andrew Lang's Blue Fairy Book, which is, like, one of the first mm-hmm. um, English, like, translation of, like, collections of fairy tales. And he did a big series of them. Come to find out he was taking credit mostly for his wife's work and um, a bunch of female assistants because, of course, he was. Oh, my God. Wait, that changes everything, though. Because then most of the work for the fairy books is attributed to his wife Leonora, but I think, except except for the the decisions I disagree with, like the ignorant decisions, because when it was like it when it was republished in the Blue Fairy book, that's when the sisters got cut out. They didn't get cut Mm. out; they were changed. They weren't jealous anymore. What? And I was like, "There's no way his wife made that choice. No, that that's him. Guaranteed, she probably." transcribed and translated and rewrote and drew a lot of it and probably bound it but i bet she didn't change that because a a woman wouldn't take that part out it's one of the most important parts of the story yes well any any woman who's had sisters as well that connection and the the betrayal of someone that is so close to you that you could have just a totally different relationship had things been had things been different or someone who you would never be close to aside from the fact that you have to live together because like there's just a lot of dynamics there that are important and are interesting and and dealing with that jealousy and trying to still care despite it feels like something that anyone who's lived that experience would want to keep in and that's that was an important part of both original versions was that the sisters consistently did terrible things to beauty and beauty was I think there's a line that's like, despite all the years of ill usage, still insisted that her father give the sisters the gold because two men had come courting. And she's like, these like my sisters really want 
marriages and that security. Like, please mm-hmm. give that to them. And one found a very handsome man who ignored her. And one found a very witty man who was cruel to her. So then we have that set up next to the beast who is ugly and, d- uh, like, dim-witted. Like, plain common sense yeah. conversation is something that was, like, really – he was a beast in, like, mo- like on multiple levels. Oh, so he wasn't this, like, charming, suave, intelligent character. No. Ugly and simple. Interesting. Like, would stumble and he would be very frank and honest. Yeah. But no wit, right? So, like, and that, like, celebrated art of conversation kind of thing that was so popular and then very important in this time. And men did it very differently than women did. Mm -hmm. So, a, like, frank, upfront, direct, honest man, good man, genuine man, is held up as this romantic hero all of a sudden that beauty gets to have this. And I cut it from my, like, summary of the tale because it's so long. <laughs> it's like <laughs> big monologue of look at my sisters like I can see how unhappy they are and they have chosen men who are uh despite being handsome and witty they're still incredibly boorish and I have a uh ugly I have a monstrous dim-witted man who loves me and yeah who's good to me who who's taken the time and she says this in the story who has taken the time to learn me Oh my god. I don't know. I I have been foolish and I I don't know I and I have been cowardly and I have allowed other people's opinions to sway me and I'm embarrassed by this choice. I am I'm I am remorseful of this choice and I'm I'm going back. So she gets all this agency too? Like, whoa. Ugh, she gets agency. Like that is just a woman writes that like I just think this it ties back to since at least this time, women have been saying, like, hey, this is what we want. Like, this is the kind of man we want. I mean, look at – you can think of the most iconic men in romance, Mr. Darcy, written by a woman. Yeah. It's it's wild. Uh, Jane Eyre is also considered a Beauty of the Beast retelling, speaking oh. of, like, classic romance. See, it's so interesting the things you can take and turn around. And that, I would say that trails along. You can see the through line of suddenly you take away the fact that he's physically a beast, quote unquote. But he is kind of. In Jane Eyre. Yeah. Big, brooding. Yeah. Oh, totally. But you take it into now it's not this like crazy fantasy. It's realistic and here's the way you can, it can look in real life. Yeah. Because that's the that's always the update is – and you can see the like – the tension between who who is taking ownership at the time, like um, after Andrew Lang, Charles Lamb gets a hold of it mm-hmm. in Victorian England, and he takes away the agency of beauty even further and makes it a faded thing. Which, like you know, in Victorian England, everyone's obsessed with like yeah. the metaphysical concept of fate. But she makes the choice. She makes the choices she makes now because it's a faded love. It's a faded destiny. She's destined. Yeah, there's no control. Which again, a woman wouldn't have done. No, I. You see, women do that in interesting ways. Where it's um, the way I see it now, at least when women take the idea of if it's faded, it's it's taking away the guilt. So mm-hmm. in, in stories today, you you might see someone faded to be with their enemy, and then that allows the character to get rid of the guilt they feel falling in love with that person because it was fated they had quote unquote no control but you don't see it necessarily as like a oh it was fated it was meant to be and i 
just didn't care because that's all the choices I made were because it was fated. Walk away. Right. It's like, oh, I decide, like, I volunteered to sacrifice my own life for my father's because it was my destiny. Like, that's, that's a very male gaze way to frame that as opposed to a lot of stories now, which is like, in a femme, if we're like a feminine gaze, it's okay, there's this element of fate. And then I exist in circumstances that are outside of my control. And how do I operate and regain agency when I am in an out of control environment? Because so many femme humans have to deal with that every day, mm-hmm. even now. And you can follow that through line all the way through history. Because if femme people, women, and marginalized people in general always are a little bit existing in circumstances that are outside of their control. Oh, yeah. I mean, what is it they say that no one knows men better than women? No one knows white people better than marginalized people? Like, you you have to, for your own safety, have a perspective on them that they just inherently can't have on themselves. So it changes – in this case, it changes the stories you're going to get for sure. I love following the path of one story when it is – and I think that there's something about Beauty and the Beast – that encourages that push and pull because it's like, look at the title. It's Beauty Beast. Mm-hmm. Like, girl versus boys. like Right. Because then, you know, men will get that story and be like, well, not all men, though. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's the that's – the, that yeah. Yeah. That's actually, the, po- oh, that's the point. Did you read it? Yeah. You know what? Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's where we're going to pause for this week and Kaylee's going to come back and for next week's episode – tell the rest of the story of Beauty and the Beast, as well as her own version of the story. But for now, thank you all so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. and receive the reward of your judicious choice. Oh my god, Ju- judicious hey, choice. Listen, Le Prince de Beaumont, calm down. <laughs> I don't even know what it is in French. I'm just mad.